If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi there. Welcome to our next episode here on Moms Talk Autism. We have a very special guest with us today talking about two really critical overlapping concepts of what our rights are as parents and navigating special education and how what that looks like um, navigating that in the modern landscape of parenting. So stick with us and we're going to dive right into that. When you become a mom, you never imagine your child getting an autism diagnosis. It feels like your dreams have shattered, like a framed photograph falling off your mantle, exploding into a thousand pieces. But instead of trying to glue those pieces back together, this community of moms is here to help you build a new dream, a better one. So join in the conversation as us moms talk autism. Thank you for being here. We have a very special guest. This is uh, Catherine Michael. Uh, she is an attorney at law. She's the managing partner of CMK Law Firm. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, it's Connell Michael Kerr. Okay, great. Um, she practices in, it's over three states, correct? Which three yeah. states? Indiana, Texas. Indiana, so- Texas, and uh, Michigan. Okay. Um, she is also a mama, but a, ironically not a mama of any child, uh, that has any type of extra need or exceptionality, but she has a true passion as if she really does have one. She understands the lens of us and our families. And, uh, she has a very, I, I feel a very unique experience as to how she fell into what she does now and why she feels so passionately about even having these conversations with folks like us here on these types of platforms um, and other media platforms to make sure that we can really express that knowledge. So um, Catherine, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about, again, like where your law journey started and why and how you've landed here? Yeah, my background was in healthcare law. And when I went to law school, I just envisioned myself getting back out, working uh, for a hospital uh, or working in a law firm that did healthcare law. And when I got out, I did start with a hospital organization. And what I started to find there was that we had students who were coming in, or I should say children who were coming in, they were students of the public school system. They may be receiving chemotherapy. They may have a terminal illness. 
uh, they may have autism, Down syndrome, the struggles that the families were having with the school. And I remember the first case I took, or one of the first cases I took, was a child who had had a brain tumor and was getting cranial radiation. And the school had refused to qualify him for special education. Uh, we couldn't get him a homebound program. And um, I offered to just go ahead and take this case for the parents. Uh, my firm let me do that at the time. And we were able to get him eligible, get him a home-based program, um, and get things back on track. But it was shocking to me the struggles these families were facing. And, and Jean, you and I this morning talked about this. I started this long before I had children. So now I've been in it 22 years. Um, but it was it was really like a splash of cold water because I had always envisioned, I think like many of us do, that you go to the schools and they're going to tell you what you need to know. They're going to be kind, compassionate, helpful until something goes wrong in your life in some way, right? Whether you have a car accident, a child with a traumatic head injury, you have a child who has dyslexia, you have a kiddo with autism. All of a sudden, when you actually really need them to do something, what I started to find is they, is they weren't. And certainly there are good schools out there. There are good teachers. There are good administrators. But what I started to find is that parents were really struggling. Um, and it was to such an extent that I actually left the uh, you know healthcare-based law firm I was working at and went to work solely in this area. Um, and the outpouring of parents needing assistance was enormous. And um, I worked with another attorney, and we just started accepting only these cases. And again, you know, we talked about this this morning as well. We're we're 20 years plus when I started in this area, and I'm not finding that it's that different. Parents are still really struggling at getting the basic services for their children, getting them eligible for special education, um, getting things done just in accordance with the state and federal laws. So that has been something that's kept me involved with it because that is, you know, our kids and getting them the services they need should be the utmost, the forefront of our mind. It would seem like it's almost automatic. Um, you gave a perfect analogy this morning to me of what the side by side where the difference in healthcare versus special education um, and where you felt like the big, big disparity is and that we're not solving the problem. And it was kind of about, you would use the, uh, the U S mail. Uh, yeah. And we have this protective mechanism towards schools and, you know, initially I, you know, I, I would say when I started into this, I could have some understanding of it, right? We, you know, I think most of us know that teachers go into this because they like kids, most of them. Um, they want to be helpful. But what happens is it's a little bit different when we look at the requirements that they need to know. When I was working with a hospital system, we were doing risk management classes constantly. We were making sure our physicians were absolutely and completely aware of the standards of care, their requirements. If a nurse saw a doctor do something you know, incorrectly, it was immediately going to be reported. Um, there were things you could count on because we knew that lives were at stake. When I got into education law, what I found is most of the teachers don't know the law. Most of the administrators don't know the law. And the most frightening thing I found is that some of them don't care to know the law. 
And it became a system of, if we don't have a good result with this child, we'll just pass them off to the next grade. And that's especially true um, when we even look at children with specific learning disabilities. I get cases all the time, um, and these were some of my first cases too, where I'm dealing with a 10th, 11th, and 12th grader who is reading at a second or third grade level, and they've been passed through the system. They haven't been found eligible for special education. Um, I know that they're probably at an extraordinarily high risk for dropping out, and yet they've just been passed through the, through the system. And to me, it's really frightening because I know they're not going to be employable. And so what does this mean, right? What does this mean in terms of public assistance? What does this mean if we're going to have to support them in the criminal justice system? And when we talk about, by that same token, when we talk about children with autism, we already know what works, right? We have a peer-reviewed um, research that shows, for instance, that applied behavior analysis works extraordinarily well, right? We know how, how to do it. And yet our schools still reject that. It's really hard to get a BCBA to actually do a functional behavior assessment or a behavior intervention plan. And so we're left with these kids who really aren't getting what they need, which leads to behaviors. Then schools are struggling. In, in some cases, it gets bad enough. We're looking at therapeutic day placements and residentials to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars because we haven't put in place what we needed to put in place back when they were in kindergarten, first and second grade. You just took me to church and you didn't even know it because I'm so passionate about that topic. Um, and I also, when I, that was my main pain point of advocacy for my own son, um, you would have thought I was asking for them to dig up diamonds on the moon. And it made it seem like it was this really obscure ask and that I was like out of my mind, um, you know, and it took, you know, it, it, and it, it, it took our, our, our toll. Um, and, you know, you did say like in healthcare, it's life or death, but I, I am, as I shared with you, I'm a trustee and I believe that educating our kids is also life or death situation. You're going to give them a life or death sentence if you don't, if we don't educate them properly and make the meaningful resources to them. Um, it was, I had to start to get used to the word no a lot. Like I was like, oh, it's just your job to tell me no. Um, and that being acquiesced to this whole new way of life and thinking of that, I, it was really big. Like you said, a splash of cold water. I mean, I was like a terrible cold shower over and over <laughs> again. Um, so we need, I, I, there was, and you didn't know where to turn to get your information. It almost was like, there was so much information. How do we get that information to parents in a more pragmatic way? Um, and I, I think that you have what you're doing with your own platform separate from what your law firm does is that you're trying to give way to that, to, to have, those resources and that, that level of education available to, to parents. So if you don't mind even like telling us a little bit about yeah. that. Well, what we found is we got lots of parents coming into the office. You and I, you, you know how many consults I'm doing on a weekly basis. And we found a lot of parents entering the system. What I used to do is give them like a bag with a couple of special education books um, or links to websites. 
And I found that parents get out there and they're absolutely overwhelmed, right? You could read three special education books and you're going to walk into your ARD meeting or your IEP meeting or your case conference, whatever they're going to call it in your state. And you're going to get there. You're going to be second guessing yourself. You're going to feel outnumbered and you're not going to know in real life how to even apply this because you never really talked about it with anybody. And so what I decided to do, and we have lots of parents, as you know, that they can't afford education attorneys, they can't even afford advocates. So I had been hosting these coffee events for parents for years where I would just go to a, a coffee shop and occasionally I would actually go to a bar and we called it Cocktails with Catherine back then, where I would just answer general questions. I won't answer specific questions for parents' cases, but we'll talk about extended school year services. We'll talk about how do you negotiate in an IEP meeting? Um, how do you know if a goal is measurable, right? We actually talk about it. So it's, and I'll have discussions. So I, I started a website, it's Coffee with Catherine, and it's just like the spelling of my name. So C-O-F-F-E-E, then with, and then Catherine, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E.com. And the idea with that was that I'm actually dialoguing with guests, other parents. How did you do this? What did it look like? What are some sample things you can say? How do we break down a goal to say this goal is going to be measurable over a full school year? What are the related services you can actually get? How do you ask for those? Um, how do you know the right amount of time for related services, right? These are all things that parents have been coming to me over the last 22 years asking, saying, you know, how do I know if 10 minutes of OT is appropriate? Right. And that's where we're looking at getting an independent OT evaluation, looking at what you're actually getting outside of that, how your child has progressed with OT over the years. Are they making progress? Same types of things with speech therapy. Right. We, we don't want children to just stagnate. We want to get those communication skills really pushed in. Um, a lot of parents have no clue as to what assistive technology is. Um, they've never their child has never had an assistive technology evaluation. When we start to talk about transition services, parents know the word transition services. They know in, in some states, after your child's 14th birthday and others, uh, their 16th birthday, they know that the school is supposed to put in place some transition planning. In almost every IEP I have looked at across numerous states, it maybe has the child will research uh, their, you know, some different careers. Or when the child is 18, we will hook them up with vocational rehabilitation. I don't see real transition plans. So that was one of the things I want to be able to cover with parents. What should a good transition plan actually look like? How do you help your school get that structured? And beyond that, if your school can't even write this stuff, how do you actively engage with them to get them to implement what you're asking them to do? And so that was something that, you know, I found I can't cover in an hour with a parent who comes in for a consultation. And I could do 40 hours of consultations with families a week. And it's like a drop in the ocean. And so I really wanted to start something that was much bigger than that and better. So that if you're living in, you know, inner city Detroit or, or inner city Houston, it's affordable. And then for parents who can actually come together, um, and so I just launched that. I mean, again, I had been doing this stuff in person. Like I was actually supposed to be up doing an in-person one last night. But as I told you, I, I've been recovering from COVID. So 
Um, I, I didn't make it up, but yeah, you, know, you I mean, look great for recovering from COVID. You know, th- thank goodness for uh, makeup and a, and a red jacket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, it has been really, you know, remarkable. We just launched it because again, you know, doing these things in person where I would just, you know, sit around with a bunch of parents, it, it was a drop in the ocean because it's parents are just thirsting for information, but it's, it's, I think there's a lot of information out there, but we struggle with how to use it, which is where, you know, your podcast, you know, is one I love, but it's where it comes in. We talk about how do we, what information is there and how do we make it usable? Yes. And I do think that what you said uh, about you had this bag, you know, of tools that you gave parents and we're like, okay, on your way. Every single one of us, when we've told our individual stories, have some version of that in our stories that it's like, okay, great. I have this pamphlet of papers and I have this book and I'm like, it's not like gets information, but how am I going to do it? And unless you have in yourself cultivated a way of being that, you know, how to then pursue that with the risk of you know, you feel like you're in this contentious environment. Um, so two, two things I wanted to ask is what is the first thing when a, to, I mean, a lot of times I feel like parents probably come to you and they're really upset. Right. And you probably have to bring down the temperature or if, or if they, you know, again, they, they literally are clueless. They've had no information given. What, what do, do you tell them about, what it is that their rights are about their child. Yeah. So the first thing I typically do with parents and it depends on the state is just start to educate them on the state laws. And then I start to educate them on idea. Um, Sometimes I'll cover a little bit about section 504, depending on their child's disabilities. You know, a a child with diabetes, for instance, may qualify under both idea and we're going to, um, well, every child who has a disability is going to qualify under Section 504 if they're also qualified under IDEA. But sometimes we like to, I, you know, I personally like to make sure that they're just in general aware of the two federal laws um, and then the state laws. And then we start at the beginning. I usually will have them fill out a questionnaire. I'll go over what an IEP is supposed to include. Um, I, I get parents all the time who bring me an IEP that has one or two goals. Um, and, and no services. Sometimes I'll see small group, group instruction. Um, on you know the flip side, I will sometimes get a parent whose child has been moved from their home school. Uh, they have autism, and the school has put that child in an emotional disabilities classroom in the most you know a really restrictive setting. They've created an IEP that has a lot of goals and a lot of services, but that child is not benefiting. So I really take them through what should this look like. What should goals look like? What should services look like? What should your child's present levels of performance actually be reporting? And it's not the evaluation that the school did three years ago. Um, What should that look like? And then we'll go through, you know, what is the least restrictive environment? Most parents really don't know. And I will tell you, most, most psychiatrists and psychologists don't know either. I mean, when we have situations where a child needs a residential placement, most of the time they're shocked that's something we can get a school to provide for a child. Um, 
So when we, when I sit down with the parent, that's the first thing I'm doing. I'm looking through, often they won't understand the testing results of their evaluations. Um, I get a lot of parents. And when I say a lot, I, I would say when we're looking at eligibility cases, about 50% of them, where a child has, the school did an evaluation when the child was in first or second grade, told the parent, child wasn't qualified, they think they may have ADHD. Um, sent the, the child to the pediatrician, pediatrician provi- uh, prescribes a stimulant, parent gets to me when the child's in sixth and seventh grade, and we've got a child who either has, um, you know, they have high-functioning autism, we don't necessarily refer to it as Asperger's anymore, and, and the behaviors have gone, you know, straight down, right? They have sensory issues, communication issues, behavioral issues at this point, um, yet their IQ is normal, so the school has been saying, hey, they're doing fine in classes, um, and then they want to try and qualify that child only under an emotional disability. Or we get kids all the time, as I mentioned before, who have learning disabilities. Um, and frankly, ADHD medications are not going to solve the fact the child has dysgraphia, dyslexia, um, and other types of specific learning disabilities. And that, so that has been one thing that has been a real frustration um, when I'm sitting down with a parent who is eight, nine, ten years into the system say, this is how it was supposed to look, and here's where we are now. And most states have a two-year statute of limitations. So back when I started in this area, we didn't have a statute of limitations at all. IDEA didn't have one. So before 2004, we could show a hearing officer, look, we have a decade of a loss of services. Now, in most states, we have two years. In Texas, we only have a one-year look back. So when a family gets to me with a 10th grader, we can get probably one year of compensatory. Sometimes if it's a really heinous case, a hearing officer might order two, but they're only really supposed to look at the violations over that one year. Um, so it's explaining that to parents. And there's often that thought of absolute devastation that you know they're this far along and that they haven't gotten what their child needed. And at that point, there's a lot of regret. There's guilt. You know, they, they usually feel like they've turned over every stone. But the problem is I think they've turned over those stones assuming that the information that they're getting is correct when it's actually not. Yeah. So the um, thing in our discussion that I brought up and there's a lot of, you know, cultural influences um, specifically in the, in the Latina um, culture is, you know, they're not, groomed to advocate at all. It's the practices defer to the experts. And that's where you're finding that parents are doing that. They're saying, oh, well, the school told me this. And so there's a perfect example of saying, you know, that that can have really, you know, unintended consequences because you didn't know that you could speak up and you had to pursue things otherwise. And it is very unfortunate it's not to say that someone like yourself, me, or any of our other moms on our podcast are like, okay with this idea. I don't find that there, none of us are complacent with the notion of, well, that's just the status quo. No, we're trying to change that narrative, but in efforts to do that, it is going, unfortunately, require more from us parents to be those advocates. We have to, even in the face of you know, not being liked and being rejected or fracturing relationships. And 
I can tell you that you, why you can fracture relationships. They also can be mendable and, and remedied um, at the same time. Um, it's not the end all be all, but I know that that is a big fear that, that rides up fear. in parents. Yeah, it's a big fear um, for a lot of parents. I mean, I've had parents come to me and their child absolutely needs to be eligible for special education. And they're afraid to push it because they're afraid that the school will be angry at them. Um, I get that over almost everything. I mean, one of the first thoughts is, are they going to retaliate against me? Are they not going to like me? And, you know, it, it's a really sad sort of state of events. And this is not how we act towards any other agency, quite honestly, right? We don't go into the post office and our, our mail, you know, just let's just say our mail wasn't getting delivered. Every time we went in, it didn't make it there, right? We wouldn't think we've got to just be nicer to the, you know, the postal agents, if we're just nicer that it'll get there. Instead, we think there's something wrong with this system and it needs to be corrected, right? And it's more, you know, this is the guarantee. And so I definitely see that with a lot of parents. You have to remember schools are government entities that are supposed to be providing a service, right? It's, we, we often get lost in the warm and fuzzies of it all. You know, if someone gets denied social security disability, they're furious with the social security administration. They're not thinking I'm going to be even nicer to them and hopefully they'll do it again. Um, and so that's really one interesting thing that I found is parents are so fearful, right? And we all want to be liked, right? I, you know, my you know, perception when I first got into this area was I'll just go to case conference with, with some of these families and that'll fix it. Or I'll call their attorney or I'll just send a letter to the school. And it really was such a shock to my system that they didn't just say, oh my goodness, yes, you're right. This child has a brain tumor and is getting cranial radiation. And of course we'll make him eligible for special education. It was instead, go ahead and file a case against us and, and we'll let a hearing officer determine it. It was very different than anything else I had ever seen in law. Um, the, the whole way that schools deal with families, and you have to also you know, understand that for the hundreds of thousands of students in special education in every state, the, well, I should say millions, right? We, most states, about 100 people, you know, Washington, D.C. Um, has a lot more, but most states hang around 100 um, due process uh, cases a year. So when we're talking about, you know, Indiana, Michigan, okay, we're talking about one one thousandth of parents will ever actually take any sort of affirmative action. So if your schools, you know, and California's got some more and Texas has a little more, but I mean, if we think about like the population of Dallas, Houston, Austin, we'd expect a ton more than we see. And so schools really have learned that most of the time parents aren't going to push back. Um, and they've also learned that in some cases, states don't have very good hearing officers. The hearing officers don't have a lot of training. And it's a long road. So schools have gotten to the point to where they may know that they're not necessarily doing what they should, but they're not going to affirmatively do something about it because nobody's going to call them on it. And, and again, for me, that was shocking because I just, I didn't know of any other area like that, right? I, I equate it to the Ford Pinto cases of the seventies when somebody did an analysis and said, it's cheaper for us to wait for the car to blow up and then pay the family and the victim 
uh, if the victim lives, than it is for us to recall all the four pentos and get them all cleaned up. And so that's what I found in education. And for me, that was that was really frightening. Um, and just seeing that what families were having to go through to get sometimes just very, very basic services for their children um, was, was shocking. Yeah, I'll change my uh, jalopy analogy now that I use <laughs> to afford to Pinto now. I will actually, I'm going to do that. That was very appropriate because I've said that before. I'm like, it's not, they, they're given a jalopy to service our kids. And I mean, and essentially, and it is important to point out is that, you know, essentially the IDA or IDEA is uh, the federal, it's a, it's an unfair funded mandate. And so it also creates the further discrepancies. Um, and then we've, and that we've talked about on other podcasts with our, with our other special expert guests. And it's not, um, it's what makes it even harder and more challenging because as I explained to you, I live in a pretty good district Mm -hmm. and there is the discrepancy from within the radius of elementary schools that are all within four minute, five minutes uh, distance from each other, there's huge jumps um, and differences there. And that's like, it's, and it shouldn't be like that, but it is. Um, I mean, this is, you know, these are systems run by humans. There's also the, the culture of schools is that it's, it's about community and your people and, and your village, right? And when you are a special uh, parent to a child with extra needs, you that shifts that relationship. You want that community, but you're not. You're like separate from it um, because both your child's needs really aren't immediately recognized without you having to say, "I need X, Y, and Z." Right. Um, and that's that's a really hard, sobering truth to to be confronted with. Um, but it is what's really encouraging is that yes, the information's out there, and there are people like you and like us that really want to help people know how to better apply that knowledge and render that knowledge and grow into the advocates that they need to be within their capacity. Because let's face it, too, everybody's capacities are much different. I'm sure you see that too, you know with wherever the health um, and socioeconomic status is of each one of your clients, what it is, what it is capable within their range. Um, And as an attorney, I really appreciated you in our conversation, even acknowledging, you know, if, if, you know, I will take on a a case based on contingency, if I know they have a really good taste case, you know, and parents don't know that they immediately hear lawyer or advocate and then right. they, they're like, that's money. I don't have it. I'm not going to pursue this. But the thing is, you may be leaving money on the table and opportunity oh, on the table for sure. to wedge forth. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing you do find with a lot of parents who have who wait to pursue these cases is that they thought it would be too expensive to do. And that's where IDEA has that fee shifting provision that allows a parent to seek their attorney's fees if they're successful in an action. And so an attorney who knows the, you know, knows cases really well can usually make a pretty good judgment. Um, you know, if, if I have a, a parent come to me and that child has failed their state standardized testing, 
They have failed most of their classes. We have an evaluation that says they have a specific learning disability. Um, I know that they're testing at second grade level and they're at ninth grade level. That's a good case. Number one, do they have a disability? Yes. Number two, do they need special education services as a result thereof? Absolutely. So that's an example of an eligibility case where I can look at that parent and say, you know, we can't make any guarantees as an attorney, but you've got a very, very good case. We'll go ahead and put you on a minimum, you know, uh, sort of payment plan and take the case on contingency um, to to ensure that we get your child services. So those are the types of things that a lot of education attorneys who get really familiar with the system um, can say, you know, can affirmatively know that they're going to be able to resolve that case for that family. Um, and a lot of attorneys also offer sliding scales. And you'll see that that is different from, for instance, if we're on the coast, like in California, and then um, if we're looking over in Massachusetts, New Jersey, more attorneys there are, are doing where they have fee arrangements because the system is really different than where, what we see in Texas, Indiana, Ohio, all through the Midwest, where we really have a system that is decades behind what I might see coming out of Oregon or California in some respects, or an IEP when I'm getting a parent who's moving into, let's say, Ohio, uh, they're coming from Massachusetts. Um, we have an Ohio division of our office. So I'm looking at that IEP and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a phenomenal document. You know, this child was getting 40 hours a week of ABA. They were provided a specialized instruction. They have a BCBA associated with the school who's working directly with the family. We have an, you know, two hours of speech a week. I'm looking at those services and I'm thinking, ooh, they've got a surprise moving to the Midwest. So it, it really is one of those things where that has been the benefit of being able to, to look at IEPs from different places because you really start to get a feel for what's possible and then where your particular state is. Um. So we were talking about due process and I wanted to kind of break down a little bit of what due process actually means. Um, and that understanding that, that that way parents also get the clarity that it's not just because you've maybe retained an attorney or a legal advocate of any sort that you are immediately in a litigious situation. There's there's different layers of due process before you kind of get to that um, hearing position. Could you break that down for them a little bit? And yeah, the first thing I, I want parents to know is due process is an administrative action. That means it's it's heard by an administrative law judge or what we call an independent hearing officer. It is a action that is filed with your state department of education. So I don't want parents to think about due process as, oh my goodness, I filed suit against my school in state court or federal court. There's a lot of fear when it comes to what a due process is. Um, and a due process, when I say it's an administrative action, parents can even file these on their own. In some states, they can do it with an advocate. In other states, you really should uh, choose an attorney. 
But what you do is it's you can file a due process for any substantive issues that are violations of your free appropriate public education. So in other words, your child's IEP is not appropriate. They're not they don't have the appropriate services. They don't have the appropriate goals um, or your child hasn't been evaluated properly or they haven't been identified properly for special education. So those are the three big reasons you would consider filing a due process. And a due process, once it's filed, it's it's filed. All states have to have a form so that you can do this on your own. In some states, you can just go online to your State Department of Education's website, fill out the form, do it there. Um, others will require the forms to be faxed in and faxed still to the uh, school. But it's an administrative action. And once a parent files it, the school has 10 days to file a response and then 15 days to hold what's called a resolution session. And that gives the school an early opportunity to come to the table and say, here's what we want to do to try and resolve this. Um, and I, I look at due process cases as you know, sort of a shot across the bow. You're saying, look, we've got serious problems. We've got such serious problems. I'm, I'm asking the state to appoint somebody independently to look at all of this and to say if my child needs something additional, they need changes to their programming, they need a new IEP. You're not asking a school in most cases to pay a million dollars. These are not, you know, like tobacco litigation or, you know, filing an action against a physician or, you know, the typical property boundary type of uh, dispute we would see. These were made to be really simple. Okay. There are many other types of administrative actions Social security, disability is one, sometimes probate courts, depending on your state. But these were made to be simple. Um, it was made so that the sole enforcers of the special education laws were the parents because the system was theoretically designed so that a parent could navigate it. And it's only up to a parent to figure out, is my child not getting what they should be? Because it was assumed that they would know their child better than anybody else, they could take these actions. The state could appoint an independent individual, and some states have 30 people, others have two. They would have an independent individual that would just say, look, this child needs a, needs five more goals in their IEP. They need reading comprehension, reading fluency, decoding, written expression. They need to have 90 minutes of specialized reading instruction, where somebody independently could come in and look at all the data, it could be presented to them. The school could say, here's what we're doing. Here's our defense. And then that person could render a decision. Instead, it has been cultivated as this scary thing for families, right? A due process is you are head to head with your school. This is the worst thing. It's the most litigious thing. And that's not really what it is. Um, basically, you're just asking somebody from the state to come in and fix this because the school won't do it on their own. And that's what to me has been increasingly frustrating is the complexity of these cases to the point that parents can't do them on their own at all. I mean, I, when a parent comes to me after they've done one on their own, there are usually so many mistakes that, you know, we can't appeal the decision and they may have had a, a really good case. But, you know, what parents have to know is that that was the original idea behind this. And if you have problems that just you have not been able to fix, it's something to at least talk to somebody about. Depending on your state, talk to an advocate, talk to an attorney, just start to get information on it. Because sometimes it's the only way you're actually going to move the needle 
um, because I have, I've seen parents go to countless IEP meetings before they get to me. Um, and they're just in a complete state of frustration. And this is one way of getting somebody else involved to solve it. Um, and that's especially true when I'm looking at residential cases where we have a child who's, who's really in need and a, and a parent has not been able to go to school to do it at all. Um, and the parent's desperate. I will say too, um, some of the caveat to all of that of when a child does have those hope bound or residential needs and a byproduct of the pandemic. And I know that's a side topic is that now what we're seeing is that there's not a, a be a human to provide those services. So why, whether they went through due process or we're going to offer some type of compensatory service, they're not now the parents like, okay, well, they're mandated to give this to me, but there's actually not a human body to, to do it. And that's also a part of the ongoing issue. So sometimes it's like, okay, well, we're going to do this. You know, is this, is the juice going to be worth the squeeze at, at the end of this and how to size that up? And I do think that that's the important part of having uh, a legal advocate or having an attorney. Um, on your team to help you make the best possible strategic educational assessment on your own of, of what is going to be the best way to remedy getting us what our child needs. Cause at the end of the day, that's really what the, right. What, what people are, people are in it, are in it for. And that's what people who the right people who are passionate and dedicated to serving this population are going to help you do that and figuring, you know, figuring that out. Um, yeah. And you, and you really do have to be very strategic about it. And, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze that, I mean, there are cases where I look at those and I'm just like, it's for what it could potentially cost you be better to just pay for tutoring for your child on your own. And so it's always that cost and benefit analysis of, what is your strategy? Is it going to work long-term? And it really is building a team around you so that you're not second-guessing yourself either. Because that's something a lot of parents do, even once they have the information, it's that second-guessing. And that's why it can be helpful to have, you know, and especially I think when you're newly entering the system, to have an advocate there with you so that you have someone else hearing what you're saying, what you're needing, and even guiding you initially through that process. I, yeah, I concur. I always say never go to a meeting alone. Never, never do it alone. Always have some, somebody with Mm -hmm. you in some capacity because you will need that person. That representation will need to be there for you at some given point. Um, And then unfortunately we have to become really good historians and make sure that we are properly tracking everything. Right. Um, I tell parents to do is when you're going to an IEP meeting, you want to bring a a lot of paper or your laptop. And I always say, you know, create three columns. What have you asked for? How has the school responded? And what is actually going in the IEP? Um, Because that's one thing parents aren't very good historians and they will often record an IEP meeting for me. And I will, they will be sure that they asked for something. I'm listening to it and I'm hearing the school say, no, here's what we're doing already in the class for all the general education students. They're thinking that's going in the IEP. It's not. The parent has asked for it. 
The school has basically said, sorry, we're not going to put it in the IEP because we're already doing that. Whether or not they really are or not, we have no clue. And then it doesn't make it to the IEPs. And sometimes that's, that's stuff as important as specialized reading instruction. So it's really important not only to have someone else hear what's being said there, but to be really confirming so are you putting the specialized reading instruction or that a BCBA is going to be developing the behavior intervention plan? Are you actually putting that in the IEP? Um, so what have I asked for? What have they responded with? If anything, what's going in the IEP? Yes, that is solid advice. And you did mention, and we've talked about this on other ones, but you do recommend that they record their IEP meetings? I I think it can be really helpful for a bunch of different reasons. And and I think especially even going back and listening to what you've asked for. Sometimes a parent will tell me they've been very assertive at all their IEP meetings. I go back and I listen to that and no, they haven't. And so it's really interesting. I think when parents then listen back to it again, what they've sort of said, okay, I, I guess I understand where they haven't said, no, here's what I asked for and here's why. Are you just saying you're not going to provide it? Instead, it's too much of this discussion where they're being talked out of everything that they're asking for. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's really interesting for parents to be go back and listen to it um, and, and, and start to do that before even a future meeting. If you're going in a year later and you brought up that you were concerned about the goals being repeats from the previous year, just you know, listen to it on a couple drives, and then you can say, oh my gosh, I was saying this exact same thing last year. I know I'm going to have to address it differently this time. Yeah, that's very solid advice. As I know, I learned a lot from listening to mine, um, and it also allowed me, like I, it wasn't until this year, because it was proper planning, I can give a really great shout out to my team. I never approved or signed off on an IEP um, during that because I'm in Texas and art. I never did. I was like, I need my five days. I will get back to you with my questions because I need to evaluate it. There was just no way to comprehend it all. Um, so listening to those recordings were really, really helpful. And then I could even give sound bites. So I could go back and say to my legal, I was like, go listen from this point to this point. What it, <laughs> How, what, how does this land with you? What are you hearing? And that way, you know, instead of just completely, you know, um, taking up all the time, um, monopolizing your time, I could just say, this is, here's what I'm looking for. Just listen to this yeah. piece. It was just, it, it's a tool. It's a tool, just like even medication. And we've talked about medication. Medication is a tool. <laughs> and if the school district also recommended that that student needed medication, then the school district is now on the hook for that child because they made the recommendation. Yeah, and they Just know. a little fun fact. We start to say, you know, they, they have reasonable reason to suspect a disability at that point as well. Yeah. Oh, well, you guys really just glossed on over that one. Like, go ahead, Shannon. I have a question. I'm going to jump in since nobody even knows that I'm here because I've been so quiet. I've just been absorbing all of this. Um, So I think that this is all really fantastic information. And I have a question based on a little bit of experience that I had this year. Um, And that is that um, I was one of those parents who went into this Mm -hmm. thinking, that like my team had Gracie's best interest at heart and we'd had such good 
like history over the years. And just for like background story, Gracie turns six in two weeks. So, or seven, I'm sorry, in two weeks. So first grade. And um, I do feel like I am fairly assertive. Like a lot of Gracie's team kind of knows me as the mom that will get a little loud if she needs to, I guess is like the best way to put it. Um, So they all know me that way. And what in a very short, brief form, what happened to us this year is um, Gracie has qualified for ESY every summer. It's been, I've had to fight a little bit for it and it was automatically included in her IEP during our meeting this year. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like this is the first year I haven't had to really push for this. Um, long story come to find out he made a mistake in the IEP and was not supposed to just give her ESY and behind my back did a prior written notice change the IEP never delivered any of it um long story short Gracie's an ESY this year so that's all been taken care of um but the one thing I found out was that when all of this came into B he had not been taking data. So we sit down, you know, once a year at these IEP meetings and we trust the data that the teachers have been taking. So what are some things that we as parents can put into place throughout the year to ensure that these things are being done? Because myself now, I already told the principal because we had a very long discussion that I'm going to be setting up quarterly meetings with the teacher and I'm going to request data every single quarter. And I want to see the numbers that you are putting in the IEP. But so other people don't find themselves in a position, you know, where I was this year, where we literally have a year basically without data, like we're going based on what the teachers are saying. And great, we got ESY, fantastic. Like, what are some things that we can do as parents that are throughout the year and not just at those yearly meetings? Yeah. So first of all, you absolutely need to be at the very minimum getting those progress reports on each of those goals quarterly. And what I often advise parents in general is on a weekly basis, every Friday, look at your child's work that is coming home. Make sure you're actually getting work home. Be looking at it in terms of does this appear to have anything related to my child's goals? Um, At the IEP meeting itself, you want to make sure that there's a there's a part following each goal where it will say um, how it's how progress is going to be monitored. Make sure it doesn't say once per reporting period. Okay, you know I, I see that or all three months. three times over yes. reporting okay. period. I'm like, like, when are those three times? Yes, we are going to be losing weight, right? And we're only going to check once per twelve weeks or so, or three times per twelve weeks. We're really not going to know if we're going in the right direction unless we're checking a lot more often than once every 12 mm-hmm. weeks. Um, yeah. Because you don't want to have, I mean, if, if we have two reporting periods pass, I mean, we're already more than halfway through the entire year and we, mm-hmm. we don't know if what we're doing is working. So I parents, I want them to really on at home. Be trying to monitor these goals on your own so you can see if something's not going the right direction or you're not seeing it. Um, I recommend that you ask that the teachers send you monthly updates on all the goals in the IEP. Um, And so I look at tracking being more like six times in a reporting period. So we're at at minimum looking every two weeks. Um, And depending on how your school structures it, some schools are on a trimester system 
Others are in a semester system with four quarters. Um, where I really want to see good data on a, at least a two to three week basis in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just asking that and saying, here's why I want that data using the same analogy. I want to make sure that we're headed in the right direction, that what you're doing is working um, so that we know, do we need another IEP meeting midway through? Because, mm-hmm. you know, whatever reading program, let's say, is being utilized isn't working. The other thing that I think when we talk about progress, and this will be specific to behavior, is that if your school has behavioral goals for your child, those need to be really carefully monitored so that we know if what they're doing works and we understand what it is. Because I see all the time, like, Devin will improve his behavior by utilizing coping strategies on four out of five occasions. First of all, number one, with this goal, what behavior are we talking about, right? What progress report are we going to see on this? Second, what coping strategies are we talking about? What coping strategies are actually working? Mm -hmm. What coping strategies does Devin know, right? And and are we actually seeing, you know, if we don't even know the behavior we're talking about and we don't know how many times it's occurring per day, we're going to have much bigger problems. So that's the other thing is making sure that goal is something that you can actually track, right? So mm-hmm. if we see a goal it like be that, a smart goal. Yes, smart absolutely. Goal. And it, you need it's to break measurable. It yes. And a parent needs to be able to break that goal down so much that at the end of the week, they can figure out how to track it on their own, right? Where they've seen the behavior reports come home every day. Let's say we're at behavior and they can see that there have been five behaviors this week. And in those five behaviors, it better say what coping strategy um, was, you know, they attempted to use. If there were times where behaviors normally would have occurred that didn't, what was the child doing? You know, what what do we see happening or else, again, this progress reporting doesn't work. And so that's where parents really need to be on top of the school. And it's mm-hmm. like everything in life. Sometimes the beginning is the hardest. Mm-hmm. And it's really pushing through holding your school accountable. And it's just like holding a teenager accountable. It's really uncomfortable in the beginning because you feel like the pushy parent and you feel like the parent that is not liked. And you know, you're the parent now that the teachers may be talking about, but at the same time, I guarantee you're going to start getting those progress reporting sheets mm-hmm. and they're going to work on trying to make these goals more measurable with every passing IEP conference. Yeah. And it's, you know, they would send home the IEP progress reports, which would say on, you know, six out of 10 occasions or on whatnot. Um, So I I just wanted to like say that. So our listeners are like, okay, wow, maybe I don't need to just be trusting these progress reports that I'm getting. And I am one of those parents. It's like I go through her folder every single day, you know, when she brings it home. And I did also have to specify okay, you're sending this work home and I'm seeing that it's done and it's in Gracie's writing and there's a smiley face at the top. Um, But I need to know how much of this is she doing on her own? How much of this is being, is she being assisted on? How much of this is hand over hand? You know, like you need to really nail down when I'm looking at this, how much is she doing by herself without assistance? Um, And there were a few times, you know, I had to request a new aid for Gracie and they were shocked because I keep daily reports for months. So like the report she gets every day that comes home and I was able to show them, you know, over six weeks of reports where she was working with different aides and what the reports looked like and what they included and get her a new aid based on that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just, 
it's funny because I do consider myself someone who like really pays attention. So when something like that popped up at the end of the year out of, I mean, you can ask Jean or the girls, I was just beside myself. Like I felt like my stomach was eating itself. Like it was just that lack of integrity. Um, And so I just want to share that for you guys, you know, the listeners to understand, like, even if you feel like you really do sort of have a grasp, we really don't know everything that's happening. It's so true. Yeah. I told her, I'm sorry, you didn't get prior written notice. Well, this we're, we're done having this conversation. That's all you need. That's the leg you have to stand on. You were not well, even notified. So Yeah. And, and what's so crazy, too, is getting into the portal and seeing, no, he created it, but he never sent any of it. He didn't advise anyone of it. And I actually had to go to the principal and say, I want that portal updated to show every, tr- like, yes. I don't want you going back and fixing it to make it right. No, you're going to go back and you're going to have it show exactly how it happened. You know? So yeah. The and, chronology on how it happened. Yeah. yeah. I want it it's, to match. And, and they don't want to do that because that's very no. exposing, but they, I feel like your school, Arizona, I feel like is a, is a really good state for special ed. Um mm-hmm generally speaking, or at least in the Tucson and the Phoenix area. Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually might be even across the board. If you're nearing a metropolis, you may find some better support systems or better foundations. And it's more in the rural areas um, of states where they're suffering even more because there's not as as enough um, resources or training or just access to things and they can, they're not being there. There's no one hovering over top of them, holding them accountable. It's just the the accountability Mm -hmm. system. Um, but I feel like they acted very quickly and turned it around because Shannon's like, I'm not messing around. I said, well, you don't need to threaten litigation yet. No, you know, that's there. Let's see how they respond after you've called them out on this. And that's what you're going to do first. And let's see. And then we'll wait. And then, you know, because she is, she's very on it. You are very on it. Here's the thing. You were by default being a good historian. And that was a very Mm -hmm. good example of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Shannon Corza is her own adjective. Um, I learned it um, (laughs) last night. Um, She's, she she does all the things without even actually ever having to have cumbered or encountered those things. And she's very good boundary. So she's like, when somebody crosses me, you're going <laughs> to hear about it. Um, but I also like that also leads me to this, right? Like the landscape of parenting and the modern world has changed so much. And that's, you know, impacting walking this path as this kind of parent having to do that. And what is it that you see? how that's impacting your line of work and how you're able to, how you're helping parents and stuff such. Yeah. You know, I, the, I think the impact um, when we talk about, you know, the changes um, over the last 20 years, I mean, I, the impact is more along the lines of we still have a long way to go. And it's, it, it's one of those things where we really, you and I talked about this before, we really need parents to feel like a call to action um, to ensure that 
there is a true change, right? We have so many things available now, you know, from virtual systems to even like Linda Mood Bell will come into schools now and, and do things remotely, right? We, we have so many things at our fingertips. I mean, from um, how schools learned virtually during COVID um, to how the legal landscape has changed, pa parents really, it all comes down to their ability to enforce the law and to say we're not going to accept things that are substandard or inappropriate for our child. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. And it's, and parents feeling empowered enough to do that. Yeah, there's, um, I find that it's very, what is available out there and even all the demands so again, like our kids are general education students first, and many of us also have other neurotypical kids. So we have neurodiverse households and you're dealing with all of that, which seems to have had an increased uptick in demand and expectations and just again, accessibility to all of these numerous things. And you're trying to do them all. You can't do that, but at the same point, because parents are so scared of messing up or not being perfect and this like uh, idea of doing things perfectly and then wanting to trust your school and wanting to be liked robs you of what you, all the other things you re having to prioritize and recalibrate the way you are going to parent your child. Right. Um, and that there's, you know, I've done a lot, sat in a lot of sessions um, with other like nonprofit organizations and, and other um, advocacy organizations. And we, we do unfortunately have, we're, we're losing, I've been informed again, there was data around this. So we're losing a generation of advocates and that's going to be all those people that got ADA passed. We're losing them. Right. Um, and, and, we, that's a big reality. And that's, that's a big call to action to us as parents as we are now the only, we are on the front lines of this and we really want to see change and see change. Exactly. stick. We're going to have to rise up to do that. And I know that's a big task and you may feel like you're down for the count, but if we were going to, we will be in a worse situation. Our children will be in a worse situation if we do not come together as a collective and, and, and no, again, like that's why we have this community. You parents out there, you have us, you have this, you have this community. If you don't have a one-on-one -on -one sounding board, there's a sounding board here. Um, and it's so, so important in figuring out. And I've heard that so many times too, like until you brought it full circle for me today, which is the information's out there, but it's really the parents not knowing how to apply it. And like, mm -hmm. oh, and so many times, like a lot of our feedback from our podcast is that it's been really, really helpful of like getting me into action. Like, yeah, I kind of like knew these things, but I didn't know how to maneuver it. I didn't know how these mechanisms worked and how to make them work to my child's benefit and their outcome. Um, it's just, it's so, so important. And uh, especially again, we're just kind of, whether it's our direct culture and society at large, but other subcultures are just not, groomed for, it's like defer to the experts and you want to do that because you also are trying to manage all the other parts of your life because this modern world has why 
it can be, there's things that have been meant to be easier or make life easier. Um, there's so much more, um, out there now. And so it's, it's a, it's a huge shift. Yeah. Uh, but things like you said are not better. We just have more things, but they're not, they're not better. So <laughs> we want to leave with something encouraging though. Not on that note, not on that note. Um, I mean, so, I think the encouraging thing is that it, the, you know, parents do have the ability to take action, right? And even if you haven't done anything until this moment, you know, start learning the law, start talking to other parents, you know, get, get in groups. You can make changes now. I mean, I tell you when parents come to me and their child is in 11th grade, sometimes they're thinking there's nothing I can do now. And there's always something you can do. Um, if you're a listener who your child is already out of school and you're thinking, oh, all the things I wish I would have known, it's helping other families navigate this and, and giving them the resources to do so. So it really is, you know, I, it's knowing that we have the power to take action. It's just, it's sort of learning that. And um, I think, you know, that's a, that's a positive, right? This isn't a situation in which you're trapped. It's a situation in which you just have to learn what to do. Yeah. Thinking outside yeah, of the box. And I, um, and I think too, that like, I will this, share. Oh, go ahead, Jen. Sorry. I just, I think too, in this, in this life, like when all of these things were happening with Gracie and I was so furious at like the lack of integrity of what was happening, it can get very easy to find yourself in a feeling of it shouldn't have to be this way. This is not how it should be. Like I have a typical, a neurotypical 16 year old. I didn't have to do any of this for her and I shouldn't have to do it for Gracie. So it can get very you can find yourself in that place, right? Where all of a sudden you're like, woe is me and life shouldn't have to be this hard. And it gets very easy to stay, to stay in that place. But yeah. staying in that place helps no one, you know, including your child. So it's sort of, you know, you've got right. to figure out a way to pick yourself up, buy your bootstraps, put on those big girl britches and learn the things that you have to learn. So I love that you are trying to find a way to get the information out to these parents who really do feel like burdened and overwhelmed with all of these things that, you know, it's their therapies and there's all these other yeah. things too. And um, so thank you for trying to put, you know, these, these things in place to help the parents find that information. Right. To accelerate that yes. accessibility for them. Um in a different way, which it benefits everything, every, everything that every, we're all trying to do. And I will say, and this is, a, this is probably the bright spot that I will end here is that <laughs> Shannon's level of advocacy that she did this year, it's, it's having, there's not a, she's not fractured her relationship. In fact, mm -hmm. it's probably been an opportunity for her to further render and improve her relationship with her child's school. Um, I did at certain points fracture my relationship with our school campuses mm -hmm. and our school district and our state, but all of those things with time have remedied. It's not, it wasn't, it's not an area of permanence. So it's, mm -hmm. and at the same point now, like I have my child in the best possible place that I always wanted him to be. It just was a really big, long, drug out, contentious fight. Um, and so it's not, 
it's not forever. It's not forever. And Mm -hmm. it is possible to still come out on the other end, even having better. I would even say that my relationships, it's, it's definitely now improved them because it's almost like, well, we, we can recognize we all went through this together. (laughs) We've survived (laughs) and now we're moving forward and we have better things in place. Um, so the possibility is still there. It's just hard and it's uncomfortable. So well, um, and I think that would be the right spot. You're, you're also showing them what you will and you will not entertain, right? So if something like this comes up again next year, they're going to say, oh, okay, well, we saw how this ended last year. Like, let's, you know, we're probably not. You're showing them what you <laughs> accept, I guess, uh, is what what I'm trying to say, you know, and what you're not willing to accept for your children. Um, and it sets a little bit of a standard. Like, I'm not going to say that. team is good enough and, yeah, mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. It can. It can. That's what you hope for. But I will tell you, they don't all read the room like that. I'm like, did you guys not learn? Did you not learn? <laughs> did you not read the room? Um it can happen. Um, Catherine, is there anything else that you wanted to um, share with our audience, our community um, that we may have not covered here or you think would be additionally beneficial to them? Yeah, no, I, th- I think you did a great job on, on covering a, a bunch of topics. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is just the parents work on educating themselves um, and just knowing they're not alone. Yeah. They are. You are not alone. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. It's been so wonderful having you. And you're just, again, like you said, it's just a drop in the ocean. Um, Because even if you spent 40 hours with us, it's still not enough time uh, for the the work that needs to be done. Um, But we are so grateful for for being connected to you and, and learning about what you're doing and, again, sharing that website as a resource for our parents. Cause like I said, I usually, you know, was sending people to, you know, Peter Wright's website and I found that to be very overwhelming. Um, you know, having something a little more streamlined and have other multimedia aspects to it will be really, really helpful for the families that I help directly as a mentor and here in our community. So thank you so, so much for that. Thank you as well for everything you're doing. I mean, it's, I, again, it takes, it takes a bunch of us to really get changes. All right. Well, thank you everyone for being here and listening to this episode. Please let us know what you, what your takeaways were um, and any other questions that you have uh, that we can answer on future episodes around this topic or topics that we covered today. Um, And we love you and thank you until next time. Bye, guys.